0: Early release programs for convicted felons are controversial, to say the least, and they always have been. It's such a delicate balance to try to alleviate prison overcrowding, yet still keep the public safe. Marshall Ratliff, Henry Helms, and Robert Hill had all served time in Texas's Huntsville prison. If they hadn't all been given what the public felt were light sentences with early release, would those who died during the Santa Claus bank robbery have lived full lives? Let's investigate. I'm so glad you've joined me for this episode of The Unlovely Truth. I'm your host, private investigator, Lori Morrison. We're gonna continue to look into this story about the Santa Claus bank robbery, and we're gonna see what spiritual and safety tips we can find there. I believe it's every Christian's calling to be what I call a different kind of PI, a person of impact. And stick around because we'll talk about one easy way to do that. This is Season 3, Episode 51. We're in our third week of investigating A.C. Green's book, The Santa Claus Bank Robbery. If you missed the first two episodes, that's okay. Check today's show notes for links, and you can get yourself caught up. Now, let's dive back into this case. It didn't take a grand jury from Eastland County long to charge each of the surviving men with armed robbery and murder. Just a week after he was captured, Robert Hill was talking about pleading guilty to the armed robbery charge. No one knew if Henry Helms was even going to survive his wounds. Less than a month after the bank robbery and the murders, Marshall Ratliff's trial began. People who were at the bank testified. And Carl Wiley, that young man who the robbers kidnapped so they could get to his father's car, he testified as well. But no one could testify that they saw Marshall fire any of the fatal shots during the robbery. They only knew that he was there and he was a part of that gang of robbers. That was apparently enough for the jury. After a four-day trial, Marshall Ratliff was found guilty of armed robbery and sentenced to 99 years in prison. They took armed robbery really, really seriously back then. A lot of people thought that even this was too light a sentence. They wanted an eye for an eye. Henry Helm's trial began in February. His time on the run and in prison awaiting trial had taken quite a toll on him. He was so thin, and nearly all of his dark hair had turned gray. It was hard for people who were seeing him to believe he was only 32 years old. The prosecution went hard after him, telling the jury that Henry needed to die. His wife and five children were in the courtroom and had to hear that. I can't even imagine being there for a family member or a close friend and hearing someone describing what my loved one had done and calling for them to die. The witnesses in this trial had seen Henry fire his gun, and that was all it took. Henry Helms was found guilty, and he was sentenced to die. I know that the death penalty is a really, really hotly debated topic, especially among believers, because we can look at it from so many different angles. You know, as as believers, if we're pro-life, there's the argument that we should be pro all life. And on the other hand, people will make the point that there is a difference between an innocent preborn child and a lawbreaker. The Bible does, especially in the Old Testament, really give quite a few scenarios where death is not only deemed appropriate, but it is said to be exactly what needs to be carried out. Now, for me, I, I get the arguments on both sides. I really do. But it comes down to the fact that our system isn't perfect. People aren't perfect. Innocent people have been convicted and innocent people have been executed. And that's not something you can undo. But getting back to our story, now it's time to hear about Robert Hill's trial for murder. He'd thought about pleading guilty to the robbery, remember? His trial was three days of a lot of the same witnesses giving the same testimony. Then on the fourth day, Bob Hill himself took the stand. The jury learned that his father had died when he was just a baby and his mother a few years later. He spent years at a juvenile detention facility, not because he'd committed any crime, but because no one could figure out what else to do with him. During Hill's sentencing, his tough childhood apparently swayed the jury. Like Marshall Ratliff, Hill was given a 99-year sentence rather than death. The prosecution then declined to prosecute him for murder. By the end of March, Ratliff was back on trial, and this time it was for murder. Interestingly, the uh, people out watching the trial, all the people that, that wanted to be there, there were a bunch of groupies, women who were charmed by him, thought he was handsome, and it just made me think of the Charles Manson trial in particular. I think there was some of that going on at the Night Stalkers trial as well. And I'm just, I'm fascinated by people's fascination with individuals who have been accused of doing such horrible, horrible things. People just don't change all that much, do they? Anyway, it only took two hours for the jury to find Marshall Ratliff guilty of murder. And this time they sentenced him to death in the electric chair. One thing we talk about uh, quite a bit here is that crime always has collateral victims. You know, it's like the ripples in a pond when you toss a stone in the water. And as Marshall's sentence was announced, his mother just began to wail and she continued to weep as everyone else left the courtroom. The trials were now all over. Robert Hill decided that he was not going to appeal his sentence. He was just happy he didn't get the death penalty. Now, Ratliff and Helms, they both appealed, had those appeals denied, and were sent to live on Texas's death row. Who doesn't love to get emails? I know I do. And I'd love to have you email me at Lori at theunlovelytruth.com. That's L O R I at theunlovelytruth.com. I want to know what you'd love about the podcast, maybe changes you'd like to see what topics you want me to cover next year because I'm planning right now, and maybe who you'd like to see as a guest and absolutely anything else that you want to share with me. So you can go to my website and, and find ways to connect. I would love to hear from you. With each robber either dead or in jail, you'd think that the story of the Santa Claus bank robbery would be over now, wouldn't you? But it wasn't, not by a long shot. Ratliff told a fellow inmate that he would, quote, never ride old Sparky, unquote, which is a nickname for Texas's method of execution, the electric chair. And despite the fact that he'd been sentenced to do just that and the fact that his appeal was denied, he was right. Texas was then, and to an extent now, known for handing out death penalties and not dragging their feet when it came to getting them carried out. The men on death row were a community of sorts, but each dealt with his circumstances in his own unique way. One of Ratliff's coping mechanisms was that he had a record player and a scratchy-sounding recording of the old hymn When the Roll is Called Up Yonder," that he would play. Remember that song? It's the one he was singing when he and his accomplices were headed towards Cisco in their stolen car on the way to rob the First National Bank. A year passed, and no date had been set for the executions of Ratliff and Helms. Robert Hill, in the meantime, had made his first escape from prison. Yes, I said his first. It seemed inevitable that Helms and Ratliff would soon have their executions carried out when a man named Harry Leahy made news. He was on the row with Helms and Ratliff, and he too had had his appeal denied. But Leahy's lawyer gave him new hope when the lawyer noticed a little-known provision in Texas state law that said you couldn't execute an insane person. Now, you didn't have to be insane when you actually committed your crime as long as you were when they were about to execute you. This obviously had a big effect on the state of death row inmates' mental health. Suddenly, a whole lot of them were insane, and Ratliff and Helms were no exceptions. The public, of course, was not happy at all with these developments in the Santa Claus bank robbery case. Helms only had a month before his execution date to convince authorities that he was no longer sane and so they couldn't execute him. He began to hum and sing day and night. He would shout, aye, aye, captain, for no apparent reason. He shredded any piece of paper that he could get his hands on, including the Bible that his family had given him. His family filed an appeal based on his supposed change in mental status. And people were shocked when he appeared at his first court hearing. He had lost a tremendous amount of weight and sang throughout the entire proceedings, stopping only to yell, aye, aye, captain, every now and again. He shredded the papers his attorney had brought to the hearing. None of it helped. He was found sane, and his execution was carried out on schedule. Sadly, Henry Helms had to be dragged kicking and screaming to the death chamber. Soon, it would be Marshall Ratliff's turn. We'll learn more about that in our fourth and final episode next week. The bio passage that I picked for today uh, from the NLT, the New Living Translation, is John chapter eight, verses one through 11. And I'm sure this is a passage that you'll find very familiar. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, The teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? Of course, they were trying to trap him into saying something that they could use against him somehow. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. These men just kept demanding an answer from him. So he stood up and said, All right. But let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, Neither do I. Go and sin no more. This story has always fascinated me. Jesus is teaching when the Pharisees and some other religious leaders approach him. But they aren't there to listen or to learn. They want to trap him. They bring a woman that scripture says was caught in the act of adultery. So let's pause right there for a minute. If she was caught in the act, where's the guy she was caught with? Why did they only bring the woman? If they're referencing Leviticus 20.10, which says if a man commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, both the man and the woman who have committed adultery must be put to death. You've got to ask, why didn't they bring the man? Maybe he was a friend. Maybe they even put him up to it so they could catch them at such a convenient time. It seems to me that they're not really interested so much in upholding God's law as they are in simply trying to attack and discredit Jesus. Because if he had tried to save the woman, they could claim that he was breaking Mosaic law. If he allowed her to be stoned, his teachings about mercy would seem hypocritical. And look at Jesus's response to their question about what to do with the woman. He seems to ignore them and starts writing in the dirt with his finger. And of course, this just annoyed them to no end. And they insisted that he answer their question. I think if I'd been there, I'd have been like, hey, what's you writing there? Some scholars think that maybe Jesus was writing the sins of the men who are accusing the woman. Others believe that the Savior may have been writing the names of these accusers. They point to Jeremiah 17, 13, which says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust, because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. Whatever Jesus was writing, what he did next really did the trick. Jesus stood up and told those men that whoever among them was free from sin could chuck that first rock. Well, that certainly put the shoe on the other foot, didn't it? Zero rocks were thrown. These men who had dragged this poor woman before Jesus in just an attempt to trap him all wilted away. I love how it says, beginning with the oldest. It took the younger men who had lived life less longer to give up their self-righteousness and thirst for Jesus's blood. And then our Savior said one more profound and amazing thing. He asked the woman if anyone had condemned her. And when she said no, he mercifully replied that he didn't either. But he didn't stop there. He gently told her to go and sin no more. Imagine we've all got somebody in our life that is like that woman. We may even be at the point where we are like that woman. Either way, each one of us can be a person of impact when we intentionally treat with kindness the people who most of us would label sinners. We might not throw actual rocks at people these days, but we surely throw around names like addict, cheater, drunk, or even words like slut as if they were stones. And I'm sure they feel like stones when they hit our targets. Now I'm all for calling out evil actions like the ones our bank robbers did over and over again. But let's not mistake people who are struggling with people who are consciously disregarding the safety or well-being of others. Now I want you to do do a favor for me here. Close your eyes for just a moment. Picture someone who really needs to be shown mercy and understanding. Whoever it is that just popped into your head, find a way to reach out and show mercy to them this week. You won't notice it when you look in the mirror, but to that person, you'll look a lot like Jesus. If you liked this episode, please check out some of my earlier ones. I've had so many amazing guests and I've studied so many just fascinating cases that you're not gonna wanna miss out. And I also would like to ask you to help someone else begin their journey as a different kind of PI, a person of impact, by sharing this episode, subscribing to the podcast, and giving me a five-star rating with a nice review on Apple Podcasts. That's a great way for new people to discover the show. The Unlovely Truth is written and produced by me, Lori Morrison. Music is by Neo Cortex, and the artwork is by Shelby Highland. See you all next time.